0: Week 6, Session 5 Die and let live If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Romans eight thirteen. A God-honouring life One of the greatest quandaries that is explored in New Testament writings is the battle between law and license. The concept of grace and forgiveness open up a new question. Why should we obey the Old Testament law if we know we will never get it fully right anyway and the penalty for our shortfall has been paid in Jesus? Isn't the idea that I can find rest from all of this? And if that's the case, why not cash in big on this unlimited grace and just do what we want? It's a good question. The Apostle Paul summarized his view of it in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, saying, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? He was saying, that part of you that wants to sin, why are you bringing it back to life? It should be dead. Much of the struggle for sin for Christians is that they allow there to be a battle of wills between the new nature and the old. But Paul is saying, don't give the old nature a voice in this. Kill it. We don't have to sin. The nature that compels it is dead. We must recognize that we choose to sin. We own the choice. Paul later says in Romans 8.12, We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature. So what is the obligation he's speaking of? It's the obligation of relationship. In Romans 8, Paul reminds us that Christ's spirit is within us, closer than a brother, so to speak, and that those led by him are sons of God. He is talking in terms of family responsibility. Now, cross-reference that with the concepts throughout Scripture related to honouring father and mother, honouring spouses, and so on. The kingdom of God is built on the existence and sustaining of honour. And what is honour? Honour is a lifestyle or practice that makes someone else's name great. To honour your parents meant that your life brought them glory, The people revered your parents because of the quality of life you live. One of the key motivations for a life of obedience to God is that it gives our Father a good name. That's why Jesus said, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit. If I slander someone's name or highlight their imperfections, I dishonor them. I have moved out of kingdom practice. But if I lift people up and represent them well, I honor them and position myself to receive honor as well. There is also another element to this idea of family responsibility. If you're a parent, you may know firsthand the inner anguish that occurs when the headmaster calls home to report that your child is disrupting class, or the deep emotional troughs experienced when your child makes life choices that you know are leading them down a road of harm or trouble for them. In the years where parents have the least control, those late teen years, children can seem determined to endanger themselves and defy authority. All that in opposition to the consistent example and encouragement to live a life in relation to God. What does it do to you? Well, it breaks your heart. It leaves you devastated that one you love and you would lay down your life for prefers to live in opposition to what you hold dear. Sound familiar? God has made us his sons and daughters, seated us next to him. He has given us an inheritance in a future. We were in deep trouble, unable to help ourselves out, and he didn't just bail us out. He took upon himself the penalty we should have had. Then what do we do? We routinely reject his help and choose to entertain sin and rebellion, knowing he will take us back. What do you think this does to God's heart? It breaks it. We cause him grief, the kind that hurts. He is more aware than us at how good life could be for us if we went his way, but we turn our heads and walk away. Our sin breaks the heart of a father who would do anything to lead us on a path towards abundance. This probably makes you feel a little guilty. Well, cancel that. That changes nothing. Our rebellious children feel guilty too, I'm sure, but that is never motivation enough for them to change. Nor will God control us, taking away our choices or our will. That's what we try and do to the rebellious often, and we try to shut them down from being able to rebel, thinking it'll take away the desire. But God says, no. Real love and relationship can only exist in an environment where there is a choice to reject it. It's only the Romans chapter 2 verse 4 kindness that will lead us to repentance. Love. It draws us, it endures our rebellion, but it also suffers for us. Why do we live in obedience to God? Because it honors him and it protects his heart. A Doorway to Life When a person matures in their faith and develops higher levels of intimacy with God, the idea of intentionally breaking his heart becomes more and more abhorrent. In the early stages of spiritual growth, that's not enough. We all begin in an egocentric way. The carnal Christian is still predominantly self-centered. Transformation becomes all about them. The abundant life is all about what they get. Whereas maturity brings a desire to give away life, to bear fruit, to bring life to others. But without feeding the egocentric side of us, a developing Christian can still find a good reason to live in obedience to the moral code of the scriptures. And it's this. Life. It is just plain good sense to live the way God told us to because it brings us to life. He didn't invent morality to make life miserable and pleasureless, which it can become if it is done just to stick to the rules. No, he wrote into the fabric of creation certain laws of life, To break those laws breaks us. It brings death. It's bad for us. Do we think Adam and Eve were happier in or out of the garden, living in sinless liberty or in bondage and judgment? I think they were happier in the garden. As a born-again Christian, when we make a choice to sin, we're saying, I prefer to be outside the garden. I like being subject to the effects of death, destroying my mind, hurting the people around me, defiling my spirit. I think that's a better plan. Now, I know that it's probably not what you say in your mind, but that is what you're doing. You have a set of scales in your mind, and you weigh up God's way or the other way. Which will I prefer? Sin kills us. Just like a cigarette, a choice to engage with it draws poison into our life. Our addictions are briefly satisfied, but never for long, and eventually the poison brings its own death. Better to deal with the addiction, find real life now, and live longer as well. Romans 8 verse 13 says, If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. You're getting the idea. If we are inclined to sin, then it's because we have a deeper issue, a deeper addiction that is going to bring death. We started this session talking about the battle between license and law, between indulging in sin or getting locked into legalistic rule following. The truth that bisects the two is liberty. We are freed to not sin. We are free from its hold and free to break loose and find life. This week's focus has been on ownership, on taking hold of our lives and owning our decisions. Liberty-based obedience is the ultimate expression of that. And there are particular moments where a choice to obey has significant impact in our development, normally when it's hardest to obey. It is when the cost is greatest that the impact is maximized. Now, when we ask people about the times they grew the most, there is a common answer that comes out. A person will say, when I went through a particularly hard season of trial, that's where I grew most. If we misread this, we could think that growth is a function of suffering, but that is not quite true. Growth does happen through trials, but only if we adapt or choose to change in the midst of it. Many people go through hard lives and hardly grow at all. On its own, suffering won't do you good. But if we make some hard choices to honor God through the suffering, that is where transformation takes place. We need to be stewards of our trials, not just passengers in them. Hebrews 5.8 talks about Jesus undergoing his seasons of trial on earth and makes the point that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. He put the suffering to work. He didn't like it or invite it, but used it as an opportunity to grow in capacity, to be perfected. We have said repeatedly over the last weeks that transforming and empowering grace doesn't work in isolation. It requires a structure to hang to, a scaffold to climb. That scaffolding is our choice to obey, because it is a choice to walk in agreement with the kingdom. The Spirit's work in our life is to do God's will in Jesus' way. The Trinity works in agreement and in unified purpose. As we create a proverbial house of obedience for grace to live in, he comes and empowers those choices, growing our capacity, increasing our character, making us mature in Christ. The great Christian philosopher and author Dallas Willard used to put it this way, we shape the human spirit to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. We create intentional spaces for grace so the Spirit can fill them and in the process, add momentum to the journey of further growth. Make a decision. One of the key principles to be taken advantage of in ownership and obedience is this. Use the energy required to make the hard decision, but do it in a way that ensures you only have to make the decision once. Making hard choices costs us. It drains us and uses up our reserves of self-control. If we have to remake that decision every time we're confronted with temptation and add more and more areas of our life that we are trying to bring under control, then it won't work. There are three phases to consider. Making the decision, managing the decision, and living in the habit. Making the decision will be a cognitive act of the will, A choice to cross a bridge then blow it up. To ensure you don't go back, you should put in place an accountability structure that, where possible, makes the price of undoing the decision exorbitantly high, high enough to discourage you from even toying with the idea. You might let friends have open access to an area of your life where you're tempted or set in place a routine where, if it's disrupted, an accountability partner will know. Once decision-making is done, then you just need to manage that decision. Management of the choice takes much less out of us and is an incremental exercise of being responsible for self. This self-responsibility is what is required when an action is not yet a habit. It is where we are transitioning out of conscious incompetence. We know what we must do, but to do it still requires deliberate conscious action. We have to exercise responsibility We must work at getting it right. We have to think about it. To do this, we need self-control, a finite resource in our own strength, but one that is given to us by the Spirit. It is, of course, a fruit of the Spirit. The measure of our spirituality will be the measure of our self-control, and yet we don't grow infinitely and overnight. So the self-control we have for today is usually about all we will have until tomorrow. It's a tank that can run dry. That's why we sin more when we're tired. We get drained, out of self-control, and needing to be recharged. Even though we're only managing the decision, our conscious self-responsibility still uses up our internal resources. But successfully managing the choice means it soon becomes a habit, a matter of unconscious action. This makes no drain on us internally. In fact, at this stage, it takes energy to break out of the habit. This leaves you free to move on and dedicate your energy to a new area of obedience and a new decision to make. A lifestyle of daily difficult decisions will wear you down. Better to choose one at a time than manage it through self-responsibility until it is an unconscious habit. Obviously, this means growth is reliant on time. It doesn't happen instantly and comprehensively. Ownership, grace and time are strong partners. God is patient though. He relentlessly draws you on, inviting you to a more abundant life at a pace that is sustainable and allows us to live in rest. He convicts rather than condemns. He pinpoints the issue for us and gives us a method to deal with it. God's motive for our growth isn't judgment, it's love. His call to obey His ways is a call to life and escape from spiritual death. He calls us to die and let live to put to death the carnal nature so we can live in the abundance and freedom of the new. We have been adopted, grafted into God's family, to act in a way that dishonours that just doesn't make sense, does it? Your Journal As Paul teaches in Ephesians 4, Sometimes we simply need to put off old behaviours and put on new godly ones. What obedience factors need to be in place for you to find more abundant life in the area you have chosen for growth?